Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA, from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the next in our five-part series where we get to know our veterans better in the context of the conflicts that they participated in. Today, we'll be discussing the Vietnam War, and with me is Dr. Marie Carlson. She is an internist who's worked at the Durham VA both in in and outpatient settings. Most recently, she's working as the Deputy Chief of Medicine and also an assistant professor in Duke. Dr. Carlson, thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks for having me. So right out of the gate, Dr. Garlson, tell me where your interest in the Vietnam War comes from. Sure. So I grew up in Fayetteville, North Carolina. I am an Army brat, and my father is a two-time Vietnam veteran, two tours in Vietnam, that is. And I developed an interest in veterans and the VA actually through my med school and residency training where At Duke, you spent a lot of time at the Durham VA across the street and really felt comfortable there and developed an interest in sort of the intersection of politics and science that happened over the Agent Orange debates that affected the veterans. Yeah, and so we're going to get into all of those details. I'll be honest and say that the Vietnam War is not something that I knew a lot about before I started working at the Durham VA because it's not something that any of my history courses really spent that much time talking about. So what we're going to do is start off with sort of a brief history lesson so that we can put our veterans' experience in context. So Dr. Carlson, what are some of the major historic points that we should know about this war? Like many conflicts that came out of the Cold War, it was really due to a fear of communism taking over parts of the world as everything shifted following World War II. And France had been in Indochina for many decades before they were interrupted (laughs) by their activity in World War II. And then we got involved to help sort of stabilize the region. By Indochina, you mean the Southeast Asian Peninsula, right? Correct, correct. And certainly that is what developed the Korean conflict as well, shortly after World War II. And we started getting involved in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, even uh, while John F. Kennedy was president. And so Lyndon Johnson sort of inherited this early conflict when uh, he became president. At the time, the major leader of North Vietnam was Ho Chi Minh. He was a communist sympathizer. One of the most fascinating things to me is that he had reached out to the United States for support. Early on, there was a letter to President Truman that went unanswered. And so instead, he reached out for support to Russia and China, who were responsive. It's one of those things where you think, you know, history turns on one small act of omission sometimes. There was a battle for really control of Vietnam with the U.S. favoring an anti-communist leader over Ho Chi Minh. And that leader himself was fairly controversial, right? Right. You're referring to Bao or Deem or both? (laughs) Well, both. I think Bao came first, right? Right. But he was overthrown by Deem. Right. And then... And he was extremely repressive, right? Yeah, Deem is the one who coined the term Viet Cong, which is the name that the South Vietnamese used to refer to the North Vietnamese sympathizers in their area. And Deem was truly brutal and awful to them, and he didn't stay in power forever. Correct, yeah. And then it ended up being a 
series of very destabilizing transitions of power. And the concern from the U.S. perspective was that that vacuum of leadership would allow communism to take root in that part of the world, which was strategically very important as it extended into the South Pacific. So that is kind of the rationale for while early involvement during the Kennedy administration and early Johnson administration. And things sort of snowballed from there. That was how we ended up bringing more troops into the area in the first place because everything just felt so unstable. And what was the U.S. public's response to our augmenting our presence in Vietnam? It was not on the forefront of everyone's mind initially. A lot of it was under the radar. I know when my father went for his first tour, it was 1966, and he was an advisor to the South Vietnamese Army. And he was there for a year. And when he compares his two tours, he felt like that was a better experience, at least for him, that he had good interactions with the South Vietnamese army. The goals were clear. And when he came home, it was not nearly the reaction that happened the second time that he went. So he comes back in 1967, 1968 in January is when the Tet Offensive happened which was a coordinated attack over, you know, 100 towns and cities in Vietnam. And lots of American casualties occurred after that. And I think that was really the beginning of the shock for the American public. President Johnson used the Tet Offensive as a means to sort of escalate troops going into Vietnam. And 1968 to 69 is really when you see American resistance to the draft, to the war. And just for definitions for our listeners, the Tet Offensive was a surprise and heavily coordinated attack on the U.S. forces in South Vietnam by the communists in North Vietnam because there was so much back and forth going on and there really wasn't any clear, decisive victor that everyone was just kind of getting impatient and they wanted to deal a decisive blow. And even though it didn't change the course of the war imminently, it was a big blow to morale for U.S. troops. There were attempts to make peace talks on multiple occasions by multiple U.S. leaders that didn't really come to much until I think 1973 when the U.S. finally did strike a peace agreement with North Vietnam, but I think North and South Vietnam continued to fight even after that. Right, until finally the North Vietnamese army took Saigon. The famous images of the last people leaving the American embassy to the helicopter is, you know, 1975 in the fall of Saigon, which is now Ho Chi Minh City. Right. And we would be remiss to not mention the Ho Chi Minh Trail as we're talking about the history of this, because that's something that's going to come up again later, particularly in regards to the experience that our soldiers had and the exposures that they had as well. So what was the Ho Chi Minh Trail, Dr. Carlson, and why is it relevant? Right, so it's essentially an informal highway of sorts that was over the border into Laos, running up and down the western border of Vietnam transporting goods, personnel, troops, trucks, supplies, food, everything. I mean, part of the initial plan for dealing with Vietnam was to get all the civilians out and then bomb it, right? (laughs) Operation Rolling Thunder was just to bomb the heck out of South Vietnam. But, you know, move the civilians out. Well, that's, you know, moving people against their will is not a great plan. It certainly didn't work. And that highway, so to speak, was one of the means of people moving back and forth. 
it was also a big part of the reason why our offenses in South Vietnam were just ineffective because the plan was to eliminate the enemy after they had moved everybody who was not the enemy out of the way. But there was a steady supply of enemy from the north that just kept on coming and they knew the terrain better. That's why there was just no ability of our soldiers to get the upper hand because there was just a continuous flow of enemy coming down. In the Durham VA's catchment area, we have about 27,000 veterans who identify as having participated in some way in the Vietnam War conflict. What do we know about these vets and what their experience was like? Sure. So there, I think, are 2.7 million veterans that served in country during that time. Only about 25% were drafted. The others did sign up. Many signed up under duress, thinking that they'd be drafted. They thought they'd have a better option for picking their service or type of job. I don't know that you would say that they weren't drafted or voluntold <laughs> what to do, which you know kind of contrasts actually with World War II, where 66% were drafted. This was the last war where there were draftees as well, right? right? So this war also put an end to the draft and informed why the age of soldiers in future conflicts ended up being a little bit higher. That's right. But Vietnam veterans tended on average to be younger. They were more in their early 20s. I think the average age World War II was 26. They did tend to be persons with less formal education because you could get college deferments. You had to be really uh, you know, in the top of your class or the top half of your class in college to get that deferment. So it affected those of lower socioeconomic class disproportionately. Yeah. And in contrast to some of the other wars that we talked about, like the Gulf War, they did get some training before they were dropped in the middle of the field, but it was such a unique fighting experience that there probably was no amount of training that would really prepare them. The warfare was different and unique. Dr. Carlson, tell us a little bit about that. There were actually at times two different North Vietnamese forces, which we sort of lumped together. There was a communist force and a non-communist force. And so it got very challenging to figure out who was the enemy. Many of the combatants would tunnel under the earth. The terrain was certainly something that many of these soldiers had not seen before. Heavy, thick jungle, very hot humid, lots of rain. It was mountainous, so they caused a number of physical ailments. Jungle feet is one of the common things because your feet were just wet all the time. And a lot of the attacks occurred at night under cover of darkness, which contributed to a lot of anxiety and fear on our soldiers and probably contributes to some of their PTSD as well. That's a great segue into talking about what some of the short and long-term implications of serving in the Vietnam War were. Obviously, being in the jungle, being wet all the time, being exposed to the elements, there were malarial mosquitoes, there were fire ants, there were venomous snakes in the area. That was the kind of immediate health risk. Dr. Carlson, let's start with PTSD. Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. So that is a condition that after any traumatic experience anyone can feel or exhibit, for soldiers, it's something that's been known for a long time. It really became more coalesced around a more formal diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder sometime after Vietnam. And certainly we've gone on to 
recognize that even non-veterans can exhibit this in response to a trauma. It is classified by a handful of symptoms, including intrusive thoughts, avoidance of distressing stimuli, persistent negative mood, and hypervigilance. Veterans often have sleep disturbance, something like 70 to 80 percent, either have nightmares or insomnia. They do exhibit a lot of behaviors that can be distressing to people around them, needing to know their surroundings. A lot of veterans will describe having to check all the locks in their house several times. It also can affect relationships in terms of the anxiety tends to often manifest as anger and that can be destructive to some relationships. So about 30% of Vietnam veterans are reported to meet the DSM-5 diagnosis for PTSD. And that's something that can impact our interactions with them as well on, in the hospital. And so it's something that we should keep an eye out for in this veteran population and probably all veteran populations. My dad never talked about it until the last five years. He's 85. Wow. Yeah, he was older because he was an officer by the time he went. It's very interesting. I think his first trip, he hung around with the Vietnamese army and he took tons of beautiful pictures, not a single picture from the second trip. And then he came back and he taught ROTC in uh, Wisconsin at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse. And, you know, they're protesting the war. They're, you know, yelling at the ROTC troops when they're doing their formation, cursing at them. My mom was just like, you can't, I couldn't believe it. And that hurt lingered forever. He, he never wanted to talk about it. And it's really only been recently that he has mentioned stories or things that were unprompted. I would set him off and not realize what I was saying. I can remember being in med school and talking about gross anatomy, like how fascinating I thought the wrist was because there's all this stuff packed in it and it's so tiny and there's just all these things. And I'm no surgeon, so I was like, I'm not gonna ever think about this again, but I thought it was really amazing. And, and I'm thinking like, what a beautiful thing the human body is that we can do it. And he left the table. We were sitting in Duke South in the food court. And he just left the table. And I thought, what in the world? But it immediately brought to mind an episode where they came upon a truck that had been bombed with children. And of course there's like body parts. Oh God. And he remembered a hand. And so, and I'm like, what in the world, you know? And so it's only been, and it's been like those episodes throughout my life where I inadvertently say or did something that I didn't make any connection to that would put him in this. Yeah. My mom teased him because when he came back in 1971, I think it was, they were in Wisconsin and someone set off fireworks and he jumped in the bushes. Oh, geez. I've seen younger veterans in my hometown that we had a, a couple that was coming over for meals and the husband had just returned from Afghanistan and he just, you know, back to the wall, can't have anybody behind you at all times in every space. Yeah, it's such an important point that we only see these veterans in the hospital when they're particularly vulnerable and particularly out of control. But PTSD and the long-term implications of the war that they fought in affects every day of their lives, whether they're in the hospital or not. Right, right. Dr. Carlson, please extend our thank you to your dad for his service and for sharing these stories. 
Oh, sure. No, I think it helps a lot. The other one from Vietnam in particular that gets a lot of press is the use of Agent Orange, which was an herbicide that was used to clear out foliage and make it easier for our soldiers to fight. So that one has been controversial in terms of who has been exposed to it and also what that exposure means. Tell us a little bit more about that. Agent Orange is one of the herbicides that was mainly used to clear out bombing targets to clear the area around military bases so they couldn't be ambushed. It cleared along riverbanks so the riverboats could patrol and see where they were. Only about 10% was used to actually kill crops because that was felt to be kind of going after civilians. It's called Agent Orange just because the barrel had an orange band on it. Agent Purple was actually a different one used early on that actually ended up having more contamination with dioxin than Agent Orange did. These were tested very early on. They had been used intermittently, actually, even in Korea, and it was very successful for doing what it was intended. The initial thoughts about toxicity were felt to be due just to direct contact. So things like chloracne, which is an acneform sort of eruption on the back or face or groin, can happen with direct contact. There's also porphyria cutanea tarda, which is a blood disorder that manifests in the skin with blisters, usually on the hands or face or anywhere sun exposed. Again, generally only seen in people that were handling it. And so it was thought that it was fairly safe. It was heavily used during Operation Ranch Hand, which was the U.S. Air Force spraying all of these various targets and started as early as, I think, 1962 and extended all the way until 1971. It was about 1970 when we started getting more information that it was teratogenic to mice. In fact, the initial concerns were actually raised for more environmental toxicity. So the first red flags went up because there are people thinking that, you know, we're actually destroying the foliage and forests of Vietnam. Like this, this in and of itself is not good. And then it became more evident that as veterans were returning, they are reporting sicknesses, illnesses of various sorts, and birth defects. And so it became sort of this political, scientific hot potato. There was a lot of debate in Congress as veterans would testify about their exposures and experiences. Congress would then issue a directive for research to be done. The CDC actually ended their report throwing their hands up that we don't think this actually harmed anyone, which of course set everyone off. In the meantime, the veterans had sued and they had joined this huge class action lawsuit and they ultimately settled for about $200 million or, or a little over that by the time it made its way through the Supreme Court. Well, the class action settlement in and of itself was a huge debacle because most of the veterans didn't agree to it. So you have potentially 2 million plus veterans that were exposed and will have lifetime effects and maybe 200,000 that might get some money. And the money that they're gonna get is not gonna be enough to take care of them for the rest of their lives if they are totally disabled. In the meantime, there are a certain number of Agent Orange associated illnesses that do get recognized. And I think the first ones were the skin conditions and the birth defects for survivors. And they started to recognize the lymphoma and Hodgkin's disease as being likely. 
And so in 1991, the National Academy of Sciences starts issuing biennial reports on conditions. And, and that, I think, is what kind of shapes the most important story about Agent Orange. When you look at the list of what we see now of associated conditions, it doesn't quite demonstrate the fight that happened for every single one of those. So for example, when I was a med student and then resident, prostate cancer got added. And that was extremely controversial because the science is weak at best. It's very hard to prove a common condition is associated with a very uncommon exposure, unlike something rare like porphyria cutanea tarda is very rare. So if you see that in a population that was exposed, you're going to say that's probably related. By the time I was leaving residency, diabetes was going to be added, and everyone thought that would bankrupt the VA. And shortly thereafter, ischemic heart disease, because how can you say it's diabetes and it's not heart disease, which is tightly related, and Parkinson's and hairy cell leukemia were added in 2010. That was the last set of conditions. And the study, actually, the funding ended in 2015 and has not been funded since. There's a lot of political struggles in all of the story that colors the Vietnam veterans' attitudes towards the VA. Honestly, I think any you know, trainee that works in the VA will sense that distrust that veterans may exhibit, particularly Vietnam, towards the VA. And I think some of that generates from all of these issues. They fought in a war, perhaps kind of against their will or actually against their will, in a conflict that was never declared a war. They didn't have veteran benefits when they first came back. They came back as individuals and not as entire units because they just served a year and left. They were coming home to people that didn't support the war and sometimes actively you know, blamed them for their service. All of those things weigh into how care gets given. There's a fundamental mistrust of the institution and that can trickle down to the individuals that are standing before them. So it's something to keep in mind, I think, when you're treating these patients in particular as well. That's such important perspective. And I like one of the points that you made in your notes that said eventually they were trying to give benefits to everybody. Right. At some point, I think the scientists, in their inability to pin down, you know, it's this location, it's this group of veterans, they finally said that it's a presumptive condition. If your boots were on the ground anywhere in the country during this time frame when they knew they were spraying and you had a condition, it was presumed associated. Even that was kind of a fight because then they didn't count the patrol boats, the folks that they call the Brown Water Navy, right? They didn't count those that were in Cambodia or Laos. As recently as 2019, that the Blue Water Navy, so the naval boats that were you know, just offshore, washing in the water, cleaning their boat with the water that's swimming with herbicide, they got recognized. And they got recognized to be in the registry and to be eligible for VA care, but they may not yet get benefits if they don't have one of the associated conditions. So that's an important point. You can actually be in the Agent Orange Registry, which is separate than being 
eligible for VA care, which is separate from getting benefits. So you can see how the veteran's perception is that we make this very difficult. Yeah, it, it doesn't sound like it was easy and I can see how that would potentially sow some mistrust. So what can we do now as providers at Duke and at the Durham VA to help sort of repair this relationship, particularly when we see people in the hospital? How can we help them? I think the number one thing you can do is put an emphasis on trying to build trust. That's the first thing. And that is true, I think, really with any patient. But with this patient population in particular, making every intention to show them you're on their side, that you're going to be their advocate. Communication is really important. The element of surprise is not enjoyed by most veterans. Making sure that you're careful when you wake them up from sleep, that we protect their sleep because they already have big issues with that. And recognizing that anger is often a manifestation of anxiety and a sense of lack of control. Putting effort in early to maintain communication and extra communication. Your plan for the day is you're going to get this echo. And if you don't know when it's going to happen, then you let them know that you don't know when it's going to happen. They might surprise you. Just preparing that goes a long way. That's such excellent advice and probably something we should be doing for everyone, but I agree in this population in particular. Yeah, we can learn a lot from some of the positives that came out of the war. From a medical perspective, we have a better understanding now of managing trauma that's even non-combat. We have a language to use, to share, so that is a positive thing. Certainly every war, for good or for ill, teaches us more about management of traumatic injuries and long-term management of living with things like paralysis and amputation. So we can learn from the veterans that have lived with this for a long period of time. We certainly have recognized, I think, a lot of the limitations of doing these sort of broad epidemiologic studies when you're talking about exposures. So that translated, I think, into works like Aaron Brockovich, who, you know, did sort of similar work looking at cancer clusters. So all of that science has translated. And lastly, I think just the political understanding, like we, we don't treat troops like we did those anymore, right? When Gulf War happened in 91, it was yellow ribbons everywhere. We are supporting the troops, even if we are against the conflict. And that continues really to this day, which I think is a positive thing. So I'm hopeful that the attitudes of veterans towards the VA will similarly evolve as they recognize that those of us that have chosen to work in that environment and serve them are doing it because we we care for them and we appreciate what they've done for this country. Now, only like 7% of our population have been veterans. And so I've learned actually as a teacher on the wards is how many of our students don't know a veteran don't know anyone who's been in the service. And it has made me realize like I need to share some of the basics about military service and how that colors your view of authority and all sorts of different things that are surprising to them. 
Yeah, it's a reminder of what a privilege it is to work in a place like this also, because yeah. we may not get exposure to those people, if not anymore. Yeah. That is an excellent thought to end on. Dr. Carlson, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an amazing conversation. I appreciate you having me. And as always, the views and opinions expressed today are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Durham VA or the Veterans Health Administration.